Welcome back, my health-inspired friends. In this week's podcast, we are going to ask the question, why is it important to maintain a healthy weight for your age and body? And we'll leave you with information that helps you feel empowered for change. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, we've put together a mood pack consisting of my favorite supplements and my journaling guide. The mood pack contains a 30-day journaling guide to encourage and inspire you towards greater authenticity in your life. It also contains probiotics, which will help heal and improve gut health, as well as ashwagandha, which is a unique supplement that has been shown to support mood, cognition, and sleep. You can find the mood pack at dradrianudim.com. Welcome back to Health Bite, the podcast dedicated to providing you with small, actionable bites towards greater physical, mental, and emotional well-being. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Nudim. The wellness and weight loss space is filled with nonsense and bogus claims. I created this podcast as an antidote to the noise to provide you with no-nonsense, evidence-based guidance in the areas of nutrition, fitness, habit change, and mindset that I use with my patients and clients in my medical practice every single day. I promise to leave you feeling empowered and inspired for change. This week, we're going to talk about the important question of why it is important to maintain a healthy weight for your age and for your body. As physicians, I think we are really motivated to get this information across. Why? One, because for too long, the societal messaging around weight loss has been cosmetic. It has been all about how we look and how we appear. And let's face it, that message is no good for anybody. But secondly, it's important to relay this message of health and well-being when it comes to healthy weight because it is empowering. Because when we are armed with the knowledge of what we can do for our own bodies, when we put ourselves in the driver's seat, then we can make the change that results in greater health, well-being, and really what's important, which is quality of life. And that's exactly what the studies show. The studies show that when we can achieve a healthier weight, not even an optimal weight, but a healthier weight, in fact, we do improve our quality of life. Now, in prior episodes, we've talked about the BMI or body mass index which is a screening tool to screen for excess weight. And we've talked about the limitations to BMI, why it is an imperfect screening tool. So that's just to catch you up to speed. BMI is a equation that takes into account an individual's weight and height and gives us a number. And that number will tell us the degree of excess weight in terms of the risk for developing comorbidities or disease. Now, the BMI does have its limitations. 
It does not account for gender. It does not account for age. It does not account for ethnicity. It does not account for body composition. And these indeed are limitations to the body mass index, which we should take into account and which should be discussed with your physician. But at the same time, we should not throw out the baby with the bathwater because it is a good screening tool. And in fact, studies have shown that having a BMI in the quote obesity category, which is the BMI of 30 or greater in your midlife will determine quality of life later on. Meaning that people who have a BMI of 30 in the middle ages, 30s, 40s, 50s, they can expect a lesser quality of life than those who are even in the overweight category. But get this, the studies also show that if individuals reduce their weight by even five to 10%, so we're not talking perfection here, but if they can reduce their weight by five to 10% and get themselves even from the quote, diagnostic obesity category, which is a BMI of 30 or greater, into the overweight category, which is in the 25 or greater range, that they reduce their comorbidities and they improve their quality of life scores. So the message here is one, it doesn't have to be perfect. Healthy weight is a range, not a number. And we know that any degree of weight loss can help improve quality of life. So let's start by talking about what are the conditions that are associated with excess weight. And I actually had the pleasure and honor of speaking to two very important groups this week. I was in Chicago at the National American College of Physicians meeting, speaking to my internal medicine colleagues. And I also had the opportunity later that week of going to University of California, Los Angeles, School of Medicine and speaking to our students about this very important topic. So what are the medical complications associated with a diagnosis of excess weight or obesity? Well, we know that excess weight affects literally every organ system from head to toe. We know that obesity puts individuals at risk for stroke and another condition called idiopathic intracranial hypertension. This is a condition that is also named pseudotumor cerebri. It's associated with an elevated pressure in the cranium, in the brain space, and it can cause symptoms like vision or visual symptoms, headaches, and weight loss is actually first line of therapy and can help bring down that pressure and improve or even eliminate that condition. Many pulmonary diseases are associated with excess weight, most commonly obstructive sleep apnea. This is a condition in which the airway is closed off periodically during sleep, giving apneas or moments in time when an individual cannot breathe. This may be perceived by the individual with awakenings. So the apneas may be so severe that the person actually is um, disrupted in their sleep, woken up so that they can take a deep breath. 
But oftentimes, an individual can experience even hundreds of apneas throughout the night that aren't even perceived by the individual. They do not result in complete awakenings, but just micro awakenings. Obstructive sleep apnea can be diagnosed through a home sleep study. It's actually quite easy now to make the diagnosis. And it's important because sleep apnea is associated with heart disease. It's associated with stroke, heart attacks, as well as a greater likelihood to go on and develop obesity. So we know that when sleep is disrupted, for whatever reason, that that puts individuals at risk for excess weight because of changes to their hunger hormones. In fact, sleep disruption makes people more hungry because hunger hormones are tweaked in the direction that promote hunger. The good news is that 5 to 10% weight loss can reduce the AHI or apnea hypopnea index. These are the numbers of apneas or awakenings people have throughout the night. It can improve quality of sleep, reduce snoring, get husband and wife back in the same bed because the wife or husband is no longer disrupting the other with snores. So weight loss can be a very powerful tool to improve sleep apnea. We also know that excess weight can actually exacerbate asthma. Believe it or not, there is a protein or a peptide that is released from adipocytes or our fat cells that migrates to the airways of the lungs and the respiratory system, causing hyperreactivity, causing the airway to be more reactive, which is the primary culprit in asthma and asthma attacks. Next, we know that excess weight is associated with comorbidities of the cardiovascular system. So we have a twin endemic obesity and type 2 diabetes. There are currently millions of individuals in the United States who have diabetes and millions more who have prediabetes or whom are at risk for going on to develop diabetes. Here's the good news once again, that weight loss, even modest weight loss, is associated with a reduced risk. In fact, there's a very landmark medical study called the Diabetes Prevention Program, in which they took individuals who had excess weight, they were in the category of overweight, so somewhere in the range of 15 to 30 pounds of excess weight, and were pre-diabetic as determined by blood tests. They randomized these individuals into three groups, diet and lifestyle group, meaning they encouraged them to walk 30 minutes a day, five days a week, and to lose five to 10% of their body weight. In the end, these individuals on average lost approximately seven to 12 pounds. The second intervention group was told to take metformin, which is a drug that we use to treat diabetes. And the third was the the control group, which got no intervention. Believe it or not, the lifestyle group reduced the risk of going on to develop diabetes by 60% as compared to the group who took metformin, an actual drug used to treat diabetes, 
who only reduce their risk by 30%. So it again shows us the power of modest change. Again, the average weight loss was approximately 10 pounds, not 20, not 30, not 50. Reinforcing the fact that even small changes to your weight and to your lifestyle, these individuals were walking 150 minutes a week or 30 minutes five times a week, but it was so impactful in terms of reducing the risk. Other conditions, hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol, high blood pressure or hypertension, stroke, as I mentioned before, are all associated with obesity. What about gastrointestinal issues? Well, we know that obesity affects the likelihood of depositing fat in the viscera, which is the area in the abdomen inside the belly that surrounds the organs and within the organs. We know that visceral fat actually is much more harmful to our health than subcutaneous fat. That is the fat that is just under the skin, in our hips, in our arms, for example, in our buttocks. The fat inside the belly can be or is more harmful. One of the reasons for that is that that fat can be deposited in the liver, causing something called fatty liver disease, which is essentially fat that accumulates in the liver. Fatty liver or steatosis can go on to become steatohepatitis, which is an inflammation in the liver associated with that deposition of fat. And if it goes on long enough, and this is on the order of decades, steatohepatitis can go on to become cirrhosis or fibrosis, which basically is scarring down of the tissue in the liver, causing the liver to malfunction, so much so that it can require liver transplantation. Now, I know many of you have heard about the need for liver transplant in individuals who drink excessively or for people who have viral hepatitis, so they've contracted a virus that affects the liver. But in fact, one of the primary indications for liver transplantation these days is steatosis, steatohepatitis, as it results in fibrotic liver disease and cirrhosis. But once again, the first line treatment for fatty liver is weight loss. And when we have done studies on individuals who've had enlarged livers. For example, there's a really intriguing study in which individuals who were being pre-opt or prepped for bariatric surgery and had fatty liver were put on a two-week very low-calorie diet and showed that they could shrink the volume of the liver or the size of the liver by 25%. So again, really profound changes that we can induce with short-term dietary and lifestyle modification. We also know that excess weight puts individuals at risk for gallbladder disease, for example, gallstones uh, that may require the gallbladder to be removed. It also puts individuals at risk for GERD or esophageal reflux, as well as pancreatitis. What else? Excess weight affects the gynecologic system, the reproductive system, 
We know that excess weight is associated with abnormal menses. It's associated with a syndrome called polycystic ovarian syndrome. These days we call it PCO or polycystic ovaries, which is a syndrome usually diagnosed in younger women. It may or may not require or have polycystic ovaries as part of the syndrome. So individuals who have an ultrasound may find cysts in the ovaries, but that's not essential for the diagnosis. It's essentially a condition in which there's a relative increase of testosterone to estrogen in the body. PCO, because of that increase in testosterone, is associated with a distribution of excess weight in their midsection. So men tend to accumulate their weight in their bellies, and so do women with this syndrome because of that testosterone. It's also associated with insulin resistance and then clinical features of excess testosterone, which include thinning hair, acne, and then finally, it can be associated with infertility. Well, get this, I actually get a lot of patients in my medical clinic for infertility and studies show that even 10% of weight loss, again, imagine someone who's 200 pounds, 10% of weight loss is equal to 10 pounds. Imagine somebody who is 180 pounds, 10% of weight loss is associated with nine pounds of weight loss, a lot, but not so much, right? Nine pounds to improve health, nine pounds in this case to restore ovulation and even fertility. And this is what I see in my patients in the office. We get them to change their diet, get moving, lose some weight. And in fact, ovulation is restored. What about cancer? Cancer is the threat that so many of us worry about. Most common cancers, even breast, colon, and prostate cancer are associated with excess weight. And actually a study just came out earlier this week that showed that higher weight is associated with more aggressive prostate cancer. There have been previous studies that have also shown that excess weight is associated with more aggressive breast cancers. In addition to that, excess weight puts us at risk for uterine cervical cancer, cancer of the kidney, pancreas, among others. But once again, get this, reducing your weight can reduce your risk for cancer. In fact, another cohort of patients that I get in the office are people who have recovered and are in remission from breast and cervical cancer. We put them on a dietary intervention, help them with their weight, and help preserve their reduced risk for cancer. Now, again, I don't want to overstate excess weight, right? As a physician I, that specializes in overweight and obesity, it is very important for me to not attribute every itch, every scratch, every ailment to somebody's weight. But these facts are true that we can reduce risk when we take care of our weight. We can't eliminate risk. And certainly the thinnest people are still at risk or still can go on to develop disease. 
but we can reduce our risk, just like wearing a seatbelt reduces our risk of getting into a serious situation if we were in a collision. So let's move on. Let's move on to talk about the skin, phlebitis or venous stasis. That's when the blood flow is impaired. The blood actually pools in the lower extremities, meaning it has trouble circulating, getting back into the heart. And when it hangs out in the legs, we can see changes in the skin, darkening in the skin over time. Also, excess weight can affect the joints, putting strain on the joints of the lower extremities, knees, hips, back. And excess weight is associated with gout, which is a condition in which there are crystal formations that get deposited in the joints to cause swelling, redness, and exquisite tenderness. People will report that this joint is so tender that even the touch of a bed sheet can be agonizing. Gout is associated with excess weight as well as excess protein in that circumstances, in those circumstances where a flare occurs. But once again, reducing weight puts people at reduced risk. To kind of summarize all of this, we know that weight is not a cosmetic concern. It really is a health concern. And it is a health concern that impacts really every organ system in our body. The more important point is that we can affect change in our own bodies and that we need not be perfect in order to be effective. Meaning that once again, modest changes in your weight, five to 10%, as little as 10 pounds can start to improve comorbidities, can start to improve the cardiometabolic risk factors for heart disease, can start to reduce the apnea hypopnea index and get you into more prolonged and higher quality of sleep, which then will improve your hunger hormone profile and further reduce your risk of excess weight. It can do all of these things and more. So where do we start? Well, often we get inspired to make change and we have these grandiose plans and ideas for ourselves. And I want to remind everyone that big change starts with small steps. Small steps when done consistently will result in big impact. And so take a small bite. Think about one small way in which you can make change in your lifestyle to start achieving this big result. Do you drink caloric beverages, soda, alcohol, or juice? Start there by eliminating that drink. Oh, another one is these Arizona drinks, or I don't want to name any names, but flavored bottled teas. Keep in mind that even though they report caloric information on the label, Usually it's per serving. So in order to determine the calories and the amount of sugar in that bottle, you have to multiply 
the number provided by two or even three. One bottle of sweetened tea can include up to 65 grams of sugar, which is tremendous. So perhaps it means eliminating caloric drinks. Maybe you have gotten into the habit of having snacks while watching TV. Maybe that small change is deciding that you're going to create a stop time to your food intake, an end time. Maybe you say to yourself, 8 p.m., 7 p.m., whenever it is that I finish dinner is my end time. And I am committed to not consuming anything else for the remainder of the night. Start there. Maybe that change is going to be dedicating yourself to better sleep. Perhaps your sleep has become fragmented because of excess alcohol or because of excess caffeine or because you're prioritizing activities like TV or returning emails or scrolling your phone. Remember that sleep deprivation is associated with an increase in hunger hormones and will result in weight gain. So perhaps that small step that you're taking is to reprioritize your seven to eight hours of sleep per night. Maybe it's starting an activity or exercise routine as little as five to 10 minutes. Meet yourself where you are. Don't promise grandiosity. I'm going to start attending a class or I'm going to enroll in a gym. I need to do an hour of exercise every day. No, start with five minutes, 10 minutes, however you can get yourself in the door. And finally, maybe it's just committing to drinking more water. We know that our thirst and our hunger pathways get mixed up in the brain. So you commit to drinking first when you feel hungry to determine maybe I'm not hungry or to question, am I really hungry in this moment? There are many small steps that one can take. If you're interested in engaging in one small step for change, I encourage you to head over to dradrianudim.com. Head over to my website where you can download a free guide, a free guide to nourishing yourself, mind and body. I have in there the small steps. I have a shopping list that you can use for yourself, writing prompts, encouragement for sleep, physical activity, and lifestyle change. Head over to dradrianudim.com, download the guide read through it and pick one thing, commit yourself to one small change. Thanks so much for tuning in this week and listening to this episode. I look forward to seeing you again next week where we'll have more actionable and compassionate guidance towards health and well-being. Until next time, I look forward to being with you then.